Take your Bibles, if you would, with me, please, and turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Last time we were together in the book of Hebrews, we spent our time um, speaking on the first of several passages, quotations, Old Testament quotations, relating to uh, the relationship between uh, the Son and then the angels of God as servants of the living God. And as we did so, we recognized the nature of, of Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of God from that first of those quotations in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, for unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And we began with an understanding of the idea of the only begotten son, what it means that Jesus is the only begotten son, and why it is so important for us to understand that concept, particularly as it relates to the comparison between Jesus, or the son, and the angels. We're going to pick up there this week in this argument. And do recall that we're in the middle of an argument, not the kind of argument that you would have uh, with another person in the sense of like siblings having an argument, but rather an argument as in a set of ideas, a series of statements, facts, or reasons that support a point of view. And Paul is bringing together an argument showing that the Son, who is Jesus Christ, is greater than the law and the prophets, greater than the prophets and the angels as we see it. And then next week we'll see how those come together. And so throughout this argument, Paul has laid out how God, who at sundry times in diverse manners spake in times past to the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And so we see this idea that, that God has superseded the message of the prophets with the message of the Son. And now we are seeing him as greater than the angels. And that is what we're going to consider throughout the entirety of our time today, that Christ has been exalted. Both Old Testament and New Testament speaks to this. And this exaltation is rooted not in Messiah's proximity to the Father, not in Messiah's direct identity as God, but in Messiah's redemptive work for mankind. And we talked about this last time as well in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. I quoted it this morning. The Bible says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And then notice it says, wherefore, for this reason, because of this, God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The reason Paul gives for Christ's exaltation was that Jesus was obedient even unto the death of the cross. Christ's submission to the will of the Father secured his exaltation above all things in heaven and upon earth. And this is the idea that we, we, we began looking at last week as we considered the concept of the exaltation of the Son, not just above the prophets, but also above the angels. And that's where we pick up this week. You saw the first half of, of, of Hebrews 5 last week as we walked through it. We'll read the entire verse, and then we'll, we'll continue in this spot. So Paul writing, he says, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me 
a son. We saw last week not only that Jesus was given this title, the only begotten son, and that being given to him officially or or him earning that title through his death on the cross and it being conferred upon him in history or in time at the resurrection, we saw as well that this is quoted from Psalm 2, verse 7. A royal psalm, considering the superiority of God's Messiah over the kings of the earth, over the heathen kings of the earth. And in in doing so, in Psalm chapter 2, or in Psalm 2, excuse me, David calls on the kings of the earth to submit themselves to the king of kings and lord of lords. And he says, do so lest he be angry with thee and they perish from the way. Naturally, the heathen kings of the world would not have listened. And the book tells us that they will not listen. And so they will perish from the way. Then we move into a second passage here in chapter 1, verse 5. He says, and again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This one is found in 1 Chronicles, chapter 17, verses 10 through 14, and 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. These are parallel passages found in these two places. And recall that this is where God is speaking to David. And David, he was at rest from all of his enemies. He was the king over a united Israel. For the first time in in quite some time, the kingdom was not in turmoil or tumult. Remember, David spent the first seven years of his reign in Hebron, just over the tribe of Judah. And now he was in a united Israel. And he was overwhelmed by God's goodness to him. Perhaps you've been there before, where you've sat at rest, at peace, And you've looked back upon the circumstances, and there's been good things and there's been bad things, but you've looked back upon the entirety of the circumstances, and you've just thought, what a great, benevolent, wonderful God. And David was having one of those moments, and he desired to build God a house. He says, here I am sitting in a house, and God dwells in a tent. And so he calls Nathan and he says, I want to build God a house. And Nathan says, go for it. And then Nathan has to come back because God tells him, go tell David something else. Go tell David he can't build for me a house. And this is the record of that conversation in 1 Chronicles 17 and 2 Samuel 7, 14, where God told David that he would not be allowed to build a house, but that God would allow his son to build a house. And this was a wonderful promise, literally fulfilled in the days of David's son, Solomon. But it was also a prophetic promise, which David recognized very well. So we read in 1 Chronicles 17. And it shall come to pass, verse 11, when thy days be expired, that thou must go to be with thy fathers. That means he'll die that I will raise up thy seed after thee, which shall be of thy sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me an house, and I will establish his throne forever. Notice in this passage, and this is different from the Second Samuel passage. In this passage, David says that he would raise him up a seed, which shall be of thy sons. And so this one has a unique 
prophetic connection that the Second Samuel 7 passage doesn't have. In that passage, uh, the, the message is very much more rooted in David's seed, his son, who would be Solomon. But in this passage, we see that there would be a seed that shall be of David's sons. He says, he shall build me a house and I will establish his throne forever. Verse 13, I will be his father and he shall be my son and I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it away from him that was before thee. That would be Saul. But I will settle him in mine house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forevermore. So God promises that the son who would come from David's sons would have an established kingdom and would build a house forever and that his throne would be established forever. This was a promise that went well beyond the days of Solomon. And as God was promising that the throne of David's posterity would be an eternal throne, David knew prophetically that since God promised to raise up Messiah to be their forever king in Israel, that that meant that Messiah was going to come through his line, his lineage, and by this, David was tremendously blessed and humbled. Now, what Hebrews wants us to see is the promise that God tells David that his posterity would be to God a son and that God would be to him a father. And the reason why this is so important is because all throughout the life of David, David calls himself the servant of God. In the Psalms, you see David call himself God's servant. Never does God relate himself to David or to Solomon as a son. David calls himself the servant of God. The Psalms call David the servant of God. The prophets call David the servant of God. But God told David that coming from David's posterity would be one who had an eternal throne, and this one would not be the servant of God, but would be called the Son of God. This is the relationship which is ascribed to, to David's posterity, which is ascribed to no other figure except one. There's only one figure from the Old Testament that is given this, this, this term, Son of God, and that's Adam. One which is given to the New Testament believer but only by virtue of the spirit of adoption on the basis of our co-inheritance with Jesus Christ through our association with his finished work on the cross. In other words, this promise is a really big deal. And this is why Paul uses it here. So in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, John, seeing the amazing visions of the apocalypse, he falls down to worship at the feet of the angel who shows him these things. And when John falls down to worship at the feet of this angel, because he is so overwhelmed by the apocalyptic vision which this angel has shown him, the angel says this in Revelation 19.10, And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The angel acknowledges in this context that he is just a fellow servant, just like John. See, there's a big difference between a servant and a son, isn't there? Both are places of blessing. The angelic hosts have a place of blessing. We, as the, the, those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, and so children of the living God, have a position of blessing. But 
the son of the living God is so much greater than the servant of God, so much greater than the angels. Paul continues his argument in verse 6. He says, and again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. Paul again quotes here from the Psalms, this time from Psalm 97, verse 7. And this is couched in a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And with each of these, I'm going to take you back to the psalm in question so that you can see where this is coming from. Paul is making an argument, and he is invoking these Old Testament prophecies, these Old Testament scriptures, in order to prove from the Old Testament that Messiah and the message of Messiah, that the message of Messiah is superior to those messengers who came before. So Psalm 97.7, the Bible says this, Confounded be all they that serve graven images, that boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all ye gods. You say, wait a minute, pastor. This doesn't say worship him, all ye angels. This says worship him, all ye gods. That's right. And this is the word Elohim. It's the same word we find speaking of God throughout the Bible. In the plural, it's ascribed to a group who is being called to worship Messiah. And this is not necessarily something that ought to confuse us because it's common usage. Remember the name Elohim is a name for God. We call it the majestic plural. It is in the plural, but it doesn't necessarily, uh, it's, it's not necessarily a proof for the Trinity or anything of the sort. Any number of kings, any number of rulers throughout history have actually given themselves a plural name, and we call it the majestic plural, that kings call themselves we in order to exalt their majesty. <laughs> that they see themselves not just as a person, but they see themselves as an institution. And so they'll use we and our to speak of his own edicts, his own rulings, his own desires, in order that, that his authority would be unquestioned. And so we see this idea here in this name, gods. It's used to describe kings. It's used to describe angels. It's used to describe false gods. It's used to describe the Godhead. And even the human leaders of Israel were often called Elohim. In John chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus quotes from Psalm 82, which quotes from Exodus chapter 22, verse 28. There's a string of, of, of quotations there, where Jehovah calls the leaders of the nation of Israel gods. He's not trying to give them a status as deity. He is simply acknowledging their authority over a group of people. Then in Psalm 82, Jehovah says that he judges among those gods and reminds these gods that they will die like men because they are only men, because he's speaking of the leaders in Israel. But he calls them Elohim, gods. So just like today, where there are many that are called God, lowercase g, but only one who is the true God, uppercase g, so too, the Old Testament needs context to understand when God speaks of Jehovah or where God speaks of some lesser being, whether that be angelic beings or men. And it seems likely in Psalm 97.7 that this is one of the reasons why God named himself Jehovah rather than just, keeping it, uh, rather than just being called God so that there would be no ambiguity. 
In Psalm 97, then, the psalmist speaks of men subjecting themselves to idols. Behind these idols are supernatural beings unto whom men ascribe worship. Not necessarily that all of them are demonic, for indeed, even today, we see people worshiping idols that aren't necessarily demonic in scope, whether that's worshiping Michael the Archangel or Gabriel or whatever it might be. And the call in the Psalms is that those who are being elevated by mankind and so worshiped are themselves subject unto the presence of the Lord when he fills the earth in his righteousness, subject unto the Son. And so the idea is all of those things in heaven or in earth that might be worshiped that are not God, worship him, the Son, all ye gods. All of the other authorities on the earth are placed in subjection, in Psalm 97, to the authority of the Son. And this is the third proof that Paul gives of the, of the uh, superiority of the Son to the angels. The next one is found in verses 7 through 9 of Hebrews 1. And of the angels he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Paul quotes here first from Psalm 104, verse 4, where God describes the angels. And then he quotes from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, where God describes the Son. We'll begin in Psalm 104. In Psalm 104, we see the nature of the angels within this passage extolling the greatness of God. We'll gain the context by beginning in verse 1, and I'll read to you verses 1 through 4 of Psalm 104. 1 through 5, excuse me. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty, who coverest thyself with light as with a garment, who stretcheth out the heavens like a curtain, who layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters, who maketh the clouds his chariot, who walketh upon the wings of the wind, who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers a flaming fire, who laid the foundations of the earth, that it should not be removed forever. So the verse in question here is, of course, verse 4, but it's preceded naturally by verse 3. Recall that the word for spirit, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, is the same word for breath or for wind. In verse 3, the Bible describes God and his dominion by saying that he lays the beams uh, of his chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariots and he walks upon the wings of the wind. And then he immediately says that he makes the angels spirits. Now this is the same word for wind in the last verse. He walks upon the wings of the wind and he makes his angels spirits. We could thus interpret this any number of ways. The King James Bible translators seeing the distinction between the physical metaphor in verse 3 and the spiritual reality in verse 4 distinguishes them. Either way, it transitions into the nature of angels as spirits through whom God works and ascribes unto them a description as a flaming fire 
or a consuming fire. Wind and fire, thus being used here as the description of the angelic empowerment and agency of angels in this world. Reflecting perhaps the capacity of angels to minister to this world either in spirit or in judgment, wind and fire. And this is tremendous, take, make no doubt. The tremendous agency of angelic beings in this world, amazing privilege and power. And that's what Paul is, is highlighting here. He maketh his angels spirits and his ministers as a flame of fire. They have agency, they have authority, they have capacity that is transcendent on this earth. And yet, notice the contrast, the substantial contrast with the sun. Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hateth wickedness. Therefore, God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Once again, we see the word God, Elohim, the same word used of the angels and the leaders of Israel, but in this case, in context, tells us who this God is, capital G, God. The one who, in consistency with the promises of, uh, to David, has an eternal throne, a right scepter. His rule as being one of righteousness, supported by that next statement, thou lovest righteousness and hateth wickedness. To this end, the Bible says, God hath anointed him above all others, above his fellows. And this is the point, that the son has no equal. That because he is righteous, even above the kings of the earth, even above the angels of the earth, that word anointed there being the word Messiah, and it's verses like this that establish this Jewish expectation that Messiah, the anointed, would be the King of kings and the Lord of lords that would come to rule over all things in heaven and earth. And so the Son is greater than the angels. The one that God has anointed with the oil of gladness, the blessing of the office, establishing him above all others who might lay claim to authority, above all other gods, above angels and prophets and kings, Above all of these stands the anointed one of God, the Messiah, the Son of God. The angels may have wind and fire, but the Son is anointed by God above his fellows. And the significance of this eternal throne is then proven by Paul in verses 10 through 12 of Hebrews 1. He says, And thou, Lord... In the beginning hast laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Again, Paul is quoting, as you can see here from the Old Testament, this time Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. Of old thou hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. That the Son is given an eternal throne reflects upon the eternal nature of who he is. That in contrast to the creation which shall perish... The Son is the one who has laid the foundations of the world. 
and of whom the heavens are the work of his hands. And though the creation shall wax old like a garment, though creation will change and be changed, the sun is ever the same, and his years will have no end. Carrying this quote over into Paul's previous argument, the angels have authority over wind and fire, but the sun is the author of that wind and fire. The sun has the right to govern the world's which he has made as the one who, according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, was before all things and by him all things consist. As the created order hastens ever toward its end, gathering speed unto its demise like a ball gathers speed as it rolls down a hill, this stands in stark contrast to the reality of the creator who is unchanging. The word we use in our circles is immutable in the heavens. He has an eternal throne, which is forever. And he is the same. And his years have no end. And this leads us to the final Old Testament passage that Paul quotes here in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? And then he asks, are they not all ministering spirits set forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? The final quote that Paul gives here is Psalm 110, verse 1. A psalm of David. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. As Jehovah spoke to David's Lord, and told David's Lord to sit at Jehovah's right hand until his enemies be made by Jehovah his footstool. The Lord is then described as being exalted above kings and judges and the heathens of this earth, telling us that this Lord is Messiah. And this interpretation is verified by Jesus himself in Matthew 22, verse 14, by Peter under inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, verse 34. And so the Son is given the blessing of sitting at the right hand of the Father, the right hand of the majesty on high, exalted to the right hand of Jehovah God, the position of privilege, of blessing, of authority, and of inheritance. And this is contrasted with the angels, that though they be keepers of wind and fire, are not exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high, but are instead ministering spirits, not sitting at the right hand of God, but leaving that throne and sent to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. And this is a wonderful position of blessing. A measure of authority unto which you and I can not even comprehend. But it's nothing compared to the Son. And this is where we'll stop for this week. Next time we're together, well, not stop the sermon yet, just stop the inter not just stop the exposition. Next time we're together, we'll see where Paul is going with this. I, this, this week has been a little bit academic. And I apologize for that. We've walked through these passages, these six Old Testament quotations, and sought to bring them together along with that seventh that we talked about last week in order to get a coherent understanding of this argument. And all of this is going to direct Paul toward the crux of the argument which is that the, the Son is superior to the angels and the prophets. The message of the Son is thus one that we ought to take the more earnest heed unto. 
Because if it's greater than the prophets and greater than the angels, then it's certainly worth our attention. So that's what's coming next week and over the next several weeks as we kind of sit in between these two points, not speaking toward the fullest implication of the son's exaltation above the angels, which we'll consider next time, but recognizing the argument and where Paul is going with it. So then what do we do with today? I've given you a lot of information, but we haven't really done much with it. And what I'd like to do today is kind of take a deep breath. This morning we talked about how to handle conflict. And we spoke of the nature and the need for humility. One of the things that sometimes can be a, a bit of a bummer is when we have a really good meaty morning message and then I give you another really good meaty evening message and you've just got so much to chew on that something gets lost in the shuffle. And tonight, seeing as though the message had a bit of an academic thrust, we don't necessarily have to do that. And I'll be, feel sufficient with the good meaty message I gave you this morning as it relates to humility. But I do want us to carry something simple away with us this evening. What I want to carry away, and where Paul is going with this, is to contemplate together simply the greatness of the Son. The greatness of of our Lord, the greatness of Jesus Christ. We know of this greatness in any number of contexts. We know of this greatness from John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we see the greatness in salvation that though we are sinners separated from God, Yet God sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. And the son was obedient even unto that death. And in doing so, purchased for our salvation. We see the greatness of that submission unto the death of the cross. We see then Christ's faithfulness sitting at the right hand of the father. Whoever lives to intercede. We see the greatness of God. We hear the greatness of God when as our brother did this evening, as we often do at the end of our prayers, we say, in Jesus' name, amen. Recognizing that the only means by which we have any authority to enter into the throne of God, into the throne of the great king, is because we come in the name of the one who purchased for us salvation. We come in the name and through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we acknowledge the greatness of God in any number of ways. We acknowledge the greatness of the Son in any number of ways. And I'd like us to comp contemplate this greatness this evening by going back to one of the passages I just read. Psalm 104. Paul quoted this in verse 7. We read that together. And of his angels he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flaming fire, right? Wind, wind and fire. And I'd like us to go back to that psalm. And I'm going to read the whole thing. It's a, a, a somewhat lengthy psalm. And I'm going to read the entire psalm for you this evening. And as I do so, I would like us to use it as a bit of a pause. The weeks are busy. We find ourselves in a uniquely tumultuous time not just uh, uh, locally, but a as a country. 
And I think this psalm can speak to us a little bit this evening. So in Psalm 104, I'm going to read all 35 verses. The Bible says this. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty, who coverest thyself with light and with garment, who stretcheth out the heavens like a curtain, who layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters, who maketh the clouds his all. Well, excuse me, his chariot. It does say his all there, but it's not supposed to. His chariot. <laughs> who walketh on the wings of the wind, who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers a flaming fire, who laid the foundations of the earth, that it should not be removed forever. Thou coverest it with the deep, as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At thy rebuke they fled. At the voice of thy thunder they hasted away. They go up by the mountains. They go down by the valleys unto the place which thou hast founded for them. Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over, that they turn not again to cover the earth. He sendeth the springs into the valleys which run among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild asses quench their thirst. By them shall the fowls of heaven have their habitation, which sing among the branches. He watereth the hills from his chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of thy works. He causeth the grass to grow for the cattle, an herb for the service of man that he may bring forth fruit out of the earth, and wine that maketh glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon which he hath planted, where the birds make their nests. As for the stork, the fir trees are her house. The high hills are a refuge for the wild goats, and the rocks for the conies. He appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knoweth his going down. Thou makest darkness, and it is night, wherein all the beasts of the forest do creep forth. The young lions do roar after their prey. They seek their meat from God. The sun ariseth. They gather themselves together and lay them down in their dens. Man goeth forth unto his work, and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are thy works! In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. So is this great and wide sea, wherein are things creeping innumerable, both small and great beasts. There go the ships. There is that Leviathan, whom thou hast made to play therein. These wait all upon thee, that thou mayest give them their meat in due season, that thou givest them they gather. Thou openest thine hand, they are filled with good. Thou hidest thy face, and they are troubled. Thou takest away their breath, they die and return to the dust. Thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created. Thou renewest the face of the earth. The glory of the Lord shall endure forever. The Lord shall rejoice in his works. He looketh on the earth, and it trembleth. He toucheth the hills, 
and they smoke. I will sing unto the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. My meditation of him shall be sweet. I will be glad in the Lord. Let the sinners be consumed out of the earth. And let the wicked be no more. Bless thou the Lord, O my soul. Praise ye the Lord. As we read through this together, we see the psalmist invoke the nature of creation itself as the means by which to compel us unto a recognition of who our God is. A reminder that as we go throughout the days and we see these monuments that man has built unto himself, and we acknowledge that these buildings and these lights and the climate control that we have here and all of the technologies that you hold in your pocket and that you use on a daily basis and that, that, that brought us here through vehicles and all of these magnificent things that man has done. And yet, when we compare that to the created order, it is very insignificant, is it not? that the lights that we have here are an attempt only to minimally simulate what God has already set in order. That the very means by which we have been able to put together all of these great things are only as we have observed God's created order and used it to our advantage. God created the laws by which these things function. And the psalmist considers the greatness of God. Verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are thy works and wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. And let it be that as we stand in this center point between where Paul's argument has been and where it is going, that perhaps we can take a pause to contemplate the greatness of our Lord and our Savior and our God that we may determine as the psalmist did that we will sing unto the Lord as long as we live. For the glory of the Lord shall endure forever. Long after the things of this earth and these buildings and these chairs and these technologies have crumbled and end up filling landfills, the glory of the Lord will remain. And thus, we sing praises to our God while we have our being. We will determine that our meditation of him shall be sweet, that we will be glad in the Lord. I guess the point is this. Don't get so caught up in life, in circumstance, even those good things of life, that you forget to pause Take a step back and remember the God that is over them all. And so the call this evening, I mean, what is an uncharacteristically short message, is to leave us thinking about our God, remembering his majesty, contemplating his righteousness, his greatness, and his goodness.
his mercy and his grace. And so as we step into our week and into all that it will ask of us, that we can sing unto the Lord, praise our God while we have our being, and be glad in the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.